Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the England Show on The Athletic. Coming up today, we will look ahead to England's Euro 2020 last 16 tie. Flo Lloyd-Hughes, Dan Bardell and The Athletic's England correspondent Jack Pitbrook are with us. Previous series, we've always talked about the past and um, teams and their records and baggage and everything else. And there's no reason for these uh, boys to feel that way. Um, most weren't born when a lot of those games happened. Um, it's, a, it's an irrelevance for them. So I think uh, we're all looking forward to the game tomorrow. We know it's a fantastic game to be involved in and a real opportunity for us to, to progress to a quarter-final. A b- big opponent with, with uh, excellent pedigree and great experience, but a game we're really looking forward to. So with uh, Dan and Flo and Jack, we've got a really good spread of ages on today's pod. Uh, so the, the best place to start is actually with what England-Germany means to you. Dan? Probably my first experience of, of real, real pain in football in Euro 96. And then I feel like maybe I feel like since then, I feel like it's worse than it actually is because I can actually think of a few times we've beaten them, I think, a Euro 2000, but then that pain is, that that joy is then followed on by pain because Phil never gives a penalty away in the, in the last minute of the last group game and England go out anyway. So even when we do well against Germany, it feels like pain follows. And yeah, just the, the, the whole Gareth Southgate thing. I, I, when I think of England v Germany, I, th- I think of Gareth Southgate. So I guess after Tuesday night, that's that's going to continue, hopefully, in a positive way this time. Do you view it, and, and later on we're going to talk to Ralph Honigstein, I ask him the question on rivalry and how it's viewed in both countries. Do you view Germany as England's biggest rival? I still think Scotland the biggest rival because because of the proximity that there is definitely something in the England Germany though it's 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 a weird one to explain obviously a lot's happened in in history and and, and things like that it's it's one you want to win put it that way but I wouldn't describe it as the biggest rivalry Flo what does it mean to you actually I have some happy memories because I think one of the sort of defining moments of my kind of young obsession with football was the 5-1 win in Munich in the in the 2002 World Cup qualifying campaign. So actually, I have some fairly happy-ish memories, really. Obviously, that World Cup game where um, Lampard's goal just was disallowed and we got smashed was kind of crushed those fairly quickly. But yeah, I, like that, that 5-1 game, Owen Hattrick, Heskey's celebration, like that was amazing for me. That was... I thought England were kind of the greatest team of all time at that point. Um, and then and then there was kind of a reality <laughs> check when you realise maybe not. But, you know, I was obsessed with Michael Owen. I tried to gel my hair like David Beckham's mohawk. Like there was some really good memories around that, around that England team and, and that Germany result. But, I mean, the reality is Germany have just been better for long periods of time. But I think this is... Uh, this is a huge moment for England, a huge opportunity, which we'll obviously go on and talk about. Is it a rivalry for you? Not really. No, I agree with Dan. I think, mm. I mean, I think the Germans probably laugh at us, laugh at us a little bit because we've got nowhere near them recently. But I think because of world history, and this is inevitable because we've already seen it in the media over the past week, like it's always created as a rivalry because the narrative and the storylines make it a rivalry. But actually, in reality, it it's not really a footballing rivalry. Yes, 66 also makes it a massive rivalry because that's the only success England really ever tasted. So you always go back to those moments. And But in, in modern times, no, absolutely not. Jack, what does it mean to you? I think it has to be that, yeah, that intense run of games from uh, the Euro 96 semi-final through to the 5-1, which was only 
what, uh, just over five years after. So that's four big games in five years. Um, especially, we, should, we shouldn't forget the Kevin Keegan toilet resignation game yeah. uh, in, what, September, October 2000 at Wembley? And and that's bi- that's a big game for the Germans, that one. Yeah. And, you know, they wanted the bridge called after Didi Haman, didn't they, and everything, because he got the goal in that game, the new bridge at, at yeah. Wembley and stuff. So that that is a big game for the yeah. Germans. Yeah, I remember watching that and feeling extremely, yeah, and feeling very upset by it on TV. And I think that would have been, because that would have been England's last, last game at the old Wembley. Yeah, it was, right yeah. before yeah. they went to go and play at Old Trafford. And I suppose, you know, Keegan was just about hanging on after England had been disastrously bad at Euro 2000. And then he um, yeah, he had to go after, after that game. And that, one of the exciting things really about the 5-1, as Flo said, was that it, England had seemingly got so much better so quickly, having been awful less than a year before. In terms of rivalry, I don't really conceive of international football in terms of rivalries. Like, I really yeah. want England... I want England to win a lot, but... It's not the same as wanting my club to win in the sense that I like I don't care if England don't win I don't care who else wins whereas if City don't win yeah there are certain other teams I'd rather win than than not and I just feel like you know I, I know that the history and the politics means a lot to some people but for me my you know my partisanship on behalf of the England football team I try to keep that as separate from politics and that as possible. I would completely agree with you on that. I find I find international football rivalry quite odd because the games don't happen frequently enough for them to be really created right. and the and the storyline to develop. And yes, maybe actually through the 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 early into the mid 90s there were several games with Germany that actually up the ante a, a little bit with the World Cup and 90 and in the Euros in, in 96, but I, I've always found the historical side of it utterly bizarre. But then, as I, as I talked to Raf about, I studied German, went on German exchanges and really enjoyed the country. So if you do that as a kid, what happened before you were even born is is a bit difficult to equate with your own with your own personal experiences. And I think I find, Jack, I don't know whether you found this with the England, the England players seem to seem to work along similar lines, really. And they're a lot younger than me. Completely, but even more so because for the England players, they won't remember a lot of the games that we're talking about. You know, for generally speaking, the first, so we, you know, we were talking to Declan Rice about this the other day and Declan Rice said, oh, you know, the Lampard disallowed goal game in 2010. Because uh, you know Declan Rice, I think was born in nineteen ninety nine, so he wouldn't even remember the five one, for example. Although I'm sure he would know about it. Um, and so, and Southgate had a good line about this yesterday, saying like these guys don't know about Peter Benetti in nineteen seventy, and of course they wouldn't. Like why on earth would they, unless they were, um, you know, unless they spend you know, all that a lot of their spare time reading Brian Glanville's history of the World Cup or scrolling through the Wikipedia page. Um, they just wouldn't know, and that's why I think uh, you know you can't you can't expect you, we can't expect too much from our players when it comes to knowing football knowing football history or knowing the kind of deep roots of this issue between the UK and Germany. Like it's it's not their jobs, and they're very young. Uh, so just let let let. And this is one thing that I think Gareth Southgate is really really good on is he just wants the players to go and enjoy the game and not get wrapped up in anyone else's big narratives. I don't think it's important to know the history of the World Cup or the history between um, England and Germany if you're a footballer. But would some argue that it is? I'm just wondering if, you know, another coach might say it's really important that we watch these archive clips of this or you understand the the size and the nature and the importance of this game. I don't know. I, I imagine for others it might be important. I don't think it is, but I wonder if some might be disappointed that for the players it isn't as much of a big deal. Do you mean important in the sense that if you watch this you'll learn not to make the same mistakes because you you won't repeat what we did in the past? Or do you mean l- watch this so that you'll get a sense of how cosmically important it is? Yeah, that- more more the occasion than the than the tactical analysis. I mean, I don't think it is, but I wonder if some coaches would say in order to get, you, you know the players hyped up for the game or excited about the game or wanting to win. I mean, certainly if in domestic football, you might do that. You might, if you were looking at an Arsenal-United rivalry, you might want to go in the past and, and, and get the players to establish the importance of that. 
but I think it's a distraction. But I wonder if some people might think that it's a good idea. <laughs> I'm sure you're right. I'm sure. I'm sure there are some lots of people who would like the England manager to do that, and there are some potential England managers who probably would do that. You know. Yeah. Uh, but at, at the same time, I think I think one of Southgate's insights is that for this kind of thing, you don't really you don't really need to over motivate the players. Like the you know they have their own motivation. It's more just a case of make, making sure they're not. O- that they're not too too motivated and trying to make them relaxed and focused, I guess, going into the game. But I'm sure you're right that some, some people will probably take a different view on this. Yeah, without getting too deep, I imagine there's a certain section of the England fan base that would say it is important, you should be hot, you should know exactly what's happened in in historical games This because that, that, that game probably means more to them than, than any other game. But personally, to me, like... I, if you can't get hyped up for a knockout game, then you shouldn't be playing football anyway. You know, if England were playing Portugal now, I'd want us to beat Portugal. We, we've had bad times against Portugal in the past. We've had bad times against Germany in the past. You know, I agree about the rivalry thing. I agree with with what Flo. I think it was Flo, what Flo said that like obviously I, I support Villa, and there's other teams in the Midlands that that tack up, have like insist on having a rivalry with Villa, but Villa only really care about their rivalry with Birmingham. I think there's a danger that we become a bit like that that with Germany and that like I think it was Flo said that they're kind of laughing at us a little bit because when it matters, they tend to win and it's a little bit embarrassing. Also it depends on on how far back in history you go, doesn't it? You know, if if England had played Germany two years or four years after the Frank Lampard disallowed goal, then they could have maybe used that as motivation, as in and I'm using my uh, uh, World Cup history here, as in when France played Germany at the World Cup in 86, four years after Schumacher had nearly decapitated Battiston, that I would imagine you show that to your French squad going, let's remember what they did four years ago to, to one of our players, Let's uh, to use that as motivation. Because you might have some similar players still still in your squad. I can't imagine a decade ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago could really... Could, could really motivate people. If anything, the, the players, obviously none of them were around in 2010, so it, it's meaningless what happened with Lampard, but if the players all love Southgate as much as I think they do, they should be saying, let's do it for him. Let, let, let's let make right 1996 for him, I think. It's probably a good thing that England didn't play Germany in the immediate aftermath of 2010, because by from 2010, Germany were obviously getting better and better and better and better, which peaked with them winning the 2014 World Cup. Whereas England, if we're honest, probably got worse and worse and worse uh, down to the Nadir of Iceland in 2016. So if we played them in 2014, we'd have been fucked. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. Like, yeah. they were miles yeah. better than us at that point. Or in 2012. It would have been 5 um, nil or something yeah, embarrassing so, uh, like that. Thank you to the FIFA draw for never, make, <laughs> never giving us that opportunity for revenge. Let's focus on, on Southgate. Uh, there's a big read on The Athletic uh, from Dom Firefield on Southgate, uh, his techniques, his empathy, how he works with Steve Holland, actually, and how he empowers his players. The relationship with Steve Holland is vital, isn't it, Jack? And and actually, you know, Southgate went out to get Holland when when he got this job. And wherever you go in football, you just hear praise for Steve Holland's coaching. Yeah, it seems to be to be like the perfect combination, like a real sort of Joe Joe Mercer, Malcolm Allison thing they've got going on there. Because obviously Southgate is all about this kind of incredible people skills and like he's got this remark we talked about this before in this podcast this remarkable gift for saying the right thing at the right time and knowing how to get in tune with all these different players and know how to press their buttons and know what every individual needs in that moment and the culture and everything whereas Holland is clearly the sort of tactics training coaching mastermind who's all about specific plans and drills and everything and has unlike Southgate, has coached at the very highest level because Holland was part of the Chelsea coaching team for years, which you know, won, won huge amounts of trophies there with various different Chelsea managers before he went full-time with England. Um, so th- they're coming at it from different angles. And they have different skill sets, but they are very complementary. They work incredibly closely together. You know, Southgate's always talking about what he does with Steve and going to watch games with him. And uh, that it's all about kind of being able to check and challenge each other, as they say at the FA, um, to to challenge each other's biases. But between the two of them, I think they, they do seem to have a very well-balanced kind of um, sharing of the work. Reports flow over the weekend suggesting that Southgate could get a new contract. Do you give him a new contract now? Do you wait and if you do wait, why do you wait? Yeah, it's a, it's a really difficult question because the game tomorrow 
is not not a lottery because it, it's it's not like a penalty shootout, which it, well it could be a penalty shootout, but you know what I mean. It's not <laughs> it's not a flip of a coin going into it. You know there there are there is a high probability that England could win, but the fact that they've drawn Germany early in the competition means it's obviously harder to I think to judge Southgate yet on this tournament and how he's done. But I do give England a very good chance of getting through. And then once they're through, the route to the final is kind of paved in glory if I don't kind of jinx myself. So I would probably wait. Um, but then if England do lose tomorrow, you're like, oh, well, they got knocked out in Germany, by Germany and they had to face Germany in the round of 16. So that's a bit tough. But actually, bigger picture, like we've said probably the best time to play Germany right now so yeah I think I would wait evaluate but also who else if it's not Southgate who else it's going to be because there's not a ton of great managers you would want to put in England right now so actually kind of stick with the guy who's brought people together who is loved or by pretty much everyone in England and is really transformed not just the culture of the team itself but also the culture of the FA I think you would stick regardless. See, Flo's kind of alluded to this, Dan, in that answer, which is my take on this, is that people are not going to be satisfied now unless Southgate gets England to the final. Because of this perceived great half of the draw, which I would I would slightly take issue with having watched having watched Denmark a lot in this tournament. So I, I I mean I do think that's looking at the country rather than looking at the football. But the perception is that oh it's the easier half. Germany are a bit hit and miss and therefore unless he gets England to the final there's there's going to be a lot of criticism aimed at him. Yeah I disagree with the, the fact of getting to a final but what I would also say is that like the World Cup, it's England's best chance of getting to a Euros final that, that, that they've ever had in, in my time when you do look at the side of the draw. But like you said, Denmark look very, very dangerous at the moment and I think they've been underestimated. I think if we get knocked out in the last 16, considering the group stage has been a little bit stodgy, I wouldn't look at this Euros as being a, a massive success personally from, from my point of view. And then I, I would find him being offered a contract before we even know what's going to happen, a little bit strange. But then I would also say that I do think Southgate's going to be in charge for a very, very long time. So in some ways, it's pretty meaningless what, what happens with the contract because I think he's and when the timing of it, because I think he's going to be here for a long time anyway, because he's done so much good. And like Flo says again, I keep agreeing with Flo, there's, there's, there's nobody else. I don't know who I would want in charge of England if it wasn't Gareth Southgate. And I think Gareth Southgate's got so much credit in the bank that he's going to get a new contract regardless. So Look, Southgate clearly is not going to get sacked and he's clearly going to manage England towards the Qatar World Cup. And he's perfect for what the FA wants. And there is no other candidate out there who could do what he does. So in, in that sense, his position is totally secure. And to be honest, I, I'm sure he will get his new contracts and will take the team towards Euro 2024 in Germany. But the fact is, as you, as you both have said, if, we, if England lose on Tuesday against Wem at Wembley, which I'd say there's probably, I don't know, a, let's say a 50% chance of that happening, everyone will say this has been a disaster. Even if England get unlucky with, I don't know, a penalty or a VAR call or any of the sort of random shit that can happen. Delict's red card. A delict. I was just exactly going to say, you know, Holland were fine really for the first half and then, you know, centre-back messes up. Or if it's nil-nil and it goes to a penalty shootout and then it really totally. is just like anything can happen and that's probably the biggest risk for him as well is it, it can't get to that point. It has to be, even if England get through it, it almost feels like it has to be a really good performance. It has to be an emphatic pushing on momentum growth performance and not just, you know, a, a penalty shootout and Kai Havertz smashes it over the bar and England win the penalty shootout, you know? Do you not think the, the public would accept that? Winning on pens? I think the public would accept it, but I think more broadly... From what's gone in the group stages is they what people want to see something more. People are are dying to see something more, and a really as as Dan put it, stodgy and yet another stodgy performance in this game that drags to like nil nil penalty shootout that is so tense, so nerve wracking. 
if England get through that, I think there'll still be a kind of, oh, that wasn't very impressive. And now who are we facing? If we face Denmark, I don't think people will be feeling confident. Whereas if it's a big win against Germany, facing Denmark wouldn't feel like necessarily uh, as much of a, a challenge. England exercised their penalty demons in the in the last World Cup. I feel like they need to exercise the demon of actually beating a big nation in, an, in a knockout game. I, I think yeah, that's really important. Exactly. I think if they can get that monkey off their back as well, I think they're in a really good place and they could quite comfortably go on and, and get to the final. But it's been a long, long time since England have been one of the top nations in a knockout game. And I think, I think that's absolutely what they need to do on Tuesday. The FA chief exec did interviews over the weekend and Jack, he said, you know, I'm sure that Gareth Southgate is on the list of every Premier League club looking for a, a job, uh, looking for a manager or wor- words to that effect. Do you think he is? I mean, I'm, I'm not 100% sure he is, which sounds ridiculous for a, an England manager who's got a team to the semi-finals and the Nations League success and so on and so forth. But I'm not sure he is. Uh, I just think club football and international football have diverged so much over the last 20 years. I, don't, you know, I remember 20 years ago, people would always say, why don't, why don't we get Ferguson or Wenger in as England manager? And it was like, obviously it never happened, but it didn't seem like a, a ludicrous thing to say. And obviously England, you know, the FA did try repeatedly to get Ferguson and and even more Wenger in, you know, to replace Keegan or replace Ericsson or whatever. Whereas nowadays, if you were to say, why don't England just get Guardiola or Klopp? You'd look, it would be ludicrous, wouldn't it? Like yes. nobody would ever yeah. say that. Yeah. So that because you know clearly club international football have gone in very very different directions and so while you know while I have so much admiration for Southgate and what he's done with England I don't really like what what club job would his level be like don't think Tottenham fans would be happy with him at Tottenham Everton need a manager Palace I mean he has played at Palace maybe maybe that level but Palace are a team like who are consistently in the bottom half of the table I can't really the idea of him going into like a Man United or Liverpool this doesn't really seem right to me. If Dean Smith left Villa, Dan? I did always think when I was a kid he might come back and, and be a manager one day. <laughs> yeah, you know what? He's not in, he's not in uh, the Villa fans' good books, particularly Gareth Southgate at, at the moment. So I don't think he'd be the most popular <laughs> choice. But I do find that that list comment quite ludicrous. I mean, he might be on the, li- the list of every Premier League team to visit the ground or on the list of every Premier League team to come in and give a motivational chat. But I'm pretty sure he's not on every Premier League team's list to be a manager. This is The England Show from The Athletic. Keep up to date with all of our Euro 2020 podcasts and writing by following us at The Athletic UK. Tactics flow, and there's a big piece from Michael Cox on on The Athletic as well about uh, the tactical battle that we will see between England and Germany. And he points out that Gareth Southgate went to three at the back when he, he first started out as England manager against Germany four years ago. That's when he first used three at the back. Would you would you start three at the back? Would you select an 11 that could go three at the back? Yeah, I definitely would. And I think Michael Cox's piece is brilliant and it it, it shows exactly why he should. And I, th- I can't remember who tweeted or wrote about it yesterday that I saw, might have been Carl, um, who was saying Southgate's done well early on to play four at the back and almost surprise Germany or whoever he's going to play beyond that if they get through because it's it's hampering the opposition's ability to to prepare for England because they might be preparing for four at the back or they might be preparing for three at the back. So I think it, it all looks like it's, it's going to be three at the back, especially now Maguire's fit. I mean, he did so well to play the whole of that, that Czech Republic game. I thought we looked really good as well. So yeah, I think it's definitely going to be three at the back. Um, I'm inclined to agree. I, th- I think three at the back probably suits England in, in the bigger games and obviously Germany is, is one of the bigger games. I, I think it would really help the wing backs. I think Luke Shaw is as good as he is and as good as he's done. I think he's got more in his locker. I think he's a little bit hamstrung when he's playing in a back four for England because it's all a little bit safe at the moment. I think we can cause them problems down the flanks, I think, and just the extra security of having the three at the back. But I would caveat that with, I know if we play the three at the back, we'll have the two defensive midfielders in front of the back three, depending on how far the fullbacks get as well. You then you then looking at only having three attacking players on the pitch and that would concern me a little bit. Yeah, I, it has always felt as if Southgate basically put the back three away back in the locker um, in the spring when he switched back to the back four for those, um, uh, for England's games in March. You know, the fact is that the back three beat Belgium. So 
clearly Southgate thinks this is a good system against good teams. And given what Germany did to Portugal, as Cox, he says in his piece, it would make perfect sense to do it this game. I guess the only issue really is is personnel then, isn't it? Like, we all think Walker would step into the back three like he did in the 2018 World Cup. I don't know who who you guys would have as the wing backs, whether you'd have, try and get Trippier in for set pieces or just go for Shaw and James. And then you've got that one other attacking position, which is currently held by Saka, uh, alongside Caden Sterling in the front line and, you know, certainly open to suggestions who should start there because there's a few different options. Uh, okay, uh, let's just uh, end that little bit of the podcast there. We're actually recording it before Gareth Southgate's press conference, but the producer is going to have time to drop in a voice note from Jack explaining what the England manager had to say. Are you aware you're doing this, Jack? Yeah. Yes? Yep. Good, excellent. Here you are in the future. God, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Doc, we better back up. We don't have enough road to get up to 88. Roads? Well, we're going. We don't need roads. So I was just on the Gareth Southgate and Harry Kane match day minus one press conference looking forward to the England-Germany game tomorrow. Um... It was a pretty brief press conference, only lasted for about 15 minutes. To be honest, wasn't as interesting as the Croatia-Spain game that I'm also watching in the background at the moment. Um, But the big message really from England was they didn't really want to get involved in any of the potential off-field distractions or narratives around this game. They don't really want to talk about the history. Um, Southgate said he doesn't want to talk about baggage. There's always people are going to be talking about... Italia 90, Euro 96, Euro 2000, the 5-1. But as Southgate said, you know, most of these players weren't born when a lot of these games happened. You know, some of the players might have a memory of the 4-1 in Bloemfontein in 2010, but that's it really. Like, the history is not very relevant to England. And as Southgate has said throughout his tenure, the players want to make their own history. So they weren't getting involved with that topic. Um, Southgate did say that in theory, Mount and Chilwell will be available to be part of the group as of first thing on Tuesday morning, although whether they actually play in the game or not is anyone's guess. Uh, Southgate also said he doesn't want to talk in detail about the contract offer that has been discussed in some of the papers this week, other than to say that he knows that he has the support of the board, but that during a tournament it's not the right time to talk about a contract. Um, Harry Kane didn't say very much of any real interest. Um, and it, it just really spoke to the England attitude right now, which is to focus on the game, no external distractions, no big talk about history or the rivalry or the draw or the route back to the final at Wembley or any of that stuff. You know, this is this is a game that England have been building up to for 18 months, arguably for longer than that. It's an opportunity to win a... Euros knockout game for only the second time in English history Uh, and the only other time they did that was against Spain on penalties in 1996 of course so it's a huge game in its own right which requires no extra external source of motivation and that's been the message of Southgate and the England team very consistently over the last week and we'll find out on Tuesday afternoon if it worked or not. Right let's get a German perspective now earlier I spoke to the Athletics Rafa Honigstein. This is Werner. Musiala, first touch for the young substitute, getting busy, looking to set up a teammate. Werner strikes it, Goretzka strikes it, and Leon Goretzka scores! Germany level for the second time, and real hope for them of staying in the tournament. Germany a long way short of their sparkling best, but in the end, they do enough. So you're busy at the moment then, Raf? A little bit. Bear <laughs> in mind, obviously... You do a lot of, obviously, a lot of work in, in, in Germany and you are aware of what is going on in your home country and you live in England and you see everything build-up-wise from the perspective here. What what are the big differences? I think the biggest difference is the the approach to, to previous games. In Germany, of course, there is tremendous pride about these big wins at Wembley and the sense of occasion that comes with it, but... As you'd expect, it doesn't have the same kind of emotional baggage that you'd get from from big defeats. And I think, generally speaking, even though this Germany team is is not the best and maybe not the most confident of teams going into the final, they're into this uh, um, last sixteen game. I think there's a 
prevailing sense of optimism, of anticipation, of people looking forward to a big clash. So you don't have that kind of fear necessarily or trepidation that seems to come with that fixture um, on this side of the channel. Is that because really the only the only fixture that could carry emotional baggage from a German point of view was England's 5-1 win in Munich? Even that, in a strange way, doesn't. I mean, nobody wants to lose 5-1 in Munich. It's It was hugely embarrassing. It was a wake-up call for, for Germany, where Germany were going. Then it was just as quickly forgotten again because it was a World, World Cup qualifier and nobody really cares about World Cup qualifiers. I know there's a mythology about certain games in England, the nil-nil in Turin, uh, you know, in the 90s and the 5-1, but it's not something you'll you'll find Germans enthusing about. Oh, do you remember that amazing win in the World Cup qualifier in the 19, in 1981? It just doesn't happen. I mean, you have you have the real games to to you know worry about or or be sad about or be happy about. And of course, it got very real six months later when Germany went to the final um, in in Japan, Korea. So the five one, as much as it was painful. At the time, and of course it was, it's not something that left much of a dent on the collective psyche of, of German football fans. It's just more important stuff has happened before and since. I mean, you talk about rivalry in, in your piece on The Athletic. You kind of talk about it being one-sided, really, because, because of Germany's success puts them on a very different page to England. Who, are, who would the Germans consider their biggest rivals? Well... I get a sense that the England-Germany thing might be changing, actually. It might become more of a rivalry because of the impact of the Premier League, but maybe we can get into this in a second. Um, certainly right now, the biggest game that could be would be Germany-Italy. Italy are seen as our biggest rivals in terms of success in big competitions. They are, you know, multiple World Cup winners. They're always competitive. Um, well, always or almost always competitive. Um, <laughs> and that is a history that's been built, a, a history of rivalry that's been built up over decades and is also further enhanced by the proximity between these countries. You know, Germans love to go on holiday in Italy. There's half a mil million Italians in Germany uh, working, living there. Um, the two countries have a sort of complex relationship. There's a saying in Italy, which is really apt, that says that the Germans love the Italians, but don't respect them. The Italians respect the Germans, don't love them. So it's a very complicated kind of relationship and football bleeds into that. And on a similar level, although perhaps slightly less pronounced, it's, it's with the Dutch. Again, a nation that is very close. We, you know, we have a border with them. Um, we perceive them in a certain way that might or might not be accurate. Um, they, I think, perceive us in very similar ways. You know, the accusation is, that either side is very arrogant and big-headed. And, of course, there's been footballing differences. And, and in 1974, you know, Germany as the villain of the piece, kind of preventing this one lovely Dutch team from, from getting their just rewards at the World Cup. There's all these, all these issues that are just much bigger than, uh, than England-Germany. And as you said in the beginning, I think for a rivalry to really emerge, that, you know, one that is mutually felt, you need to have either some kind of huge sort of dislike on some level, which just doesn't exist with England. Germans, generally speaking, like English and British things and look up to them and, and find them fascinating and, and weird and quirky. Or you need to have some huge sort of traumatic defeats. And neither has really been the case with England in the last five and a half decades. So we just don't have the same... Yeah, the same emo emotional burden, if you will, going into this fixture. Do the French not feature in that rivalry then? They do, but I think with the French, it's it's more complex because they, I'm sure, hate us at some level for what we did in the 80s, you know, Schumacher, Batistón, and four <laughs> years later, again, knocking them out, this wonderful French team in 86 in, in the semi-final, And then... If you will, there was there was a couple of rematches of sorts in 2014, 2016. But in the grand scheme of things, it hasn't, I think, been constant enough. It's been intermittent. You know, you had the 80s and now more recently you had two big games in the 10s. But 
I'm not sure it's enough to invoke strong feelings. I mean, there are strong feelings on either side about what Germans think of French and what the French think of the Germans. But again, I, I think it doesn't, the, 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 the uh, touching paper hasn't been quite lit on that yet. It, it might change, but it hasn't quite the same resonance for us. So going back to that point you made about the Premier League, the, the Premier League may have increased the rivalry. Now, is, is that because of German players playing over here? Is that because of the the sort of competitive academies and and German Bundesliga clubs taking players from Premier League academies? Why has the Premier League increased the rivalry a little bit? Well, I think two things have happened. First of all, the Premier League, of course, has enhanced or increased exposure of English football to Germans. It used to be this otherness, you know, these these weird people with no teeth and bleeding heads that would that we'd play once every few years. Uh, now it's it's a much more familiar situation. We know the players. Uh, the Premier League is quite popular in Germany as as far as a second league is concerned. And I think that there's been so many German coaches and players. In a way, it's reduced the rivalry in terms of the the animosity that you might feel. It's much more mm. difficult to dislike people who are actually there and they're enjoying themselves and they're playing well or the, you know, the Jürgen Klopp and the Thomas Tuchel. So the German thing is perhaps less abstract in that way and vice versa. But at the same time, I think the Premier League is seen as a danger to, to lots of German teams and to German football because it does have this gravitational pull on talent and sucks sucks up players and, and coaches, increasingly maybe even administrators behind the scenes, good journalists as well, um, <laughs> and me. And I think the last thing that Germans always had, you know, or, or, or from a football point of view in terms of banter, if you will, or I hate the terms, but I, I can't even think of anything else at the moment, the sort of the bragging rights was the success of the national team. That was the sort of the last bulwark against English dominance. And my sense is if that were to crumble, if England now finally as a team catch up with all the, the results and the, the brilliance of the Premier League, then you might be in a situation where Germany will be sort of the junior partner to this rivalry, the way that a lot of countries or, or at club level people look at the Premier League as this, this sort of this uh, juggernaut that is is a little bit overpowering. And I think at that moment, you might have a different kind of relationship in Germany emerging where people be a lot more envious and envied and easily turns into dislike and that kind of stuff. But it hasn't happened yet. It could happen if if we'd see pronounced success from the English, English team. If I hadn't have dropped German after I'd done my A-level in it and continued it at university, whether I, I could have then gone to Germany and been... The Raf Honigstein in, sure, in Germany, sure. uh, and and that journalistic talent would have been swapped, right? <laughs> but uh, there's a serious point here, and and I think it's worth making. I mean, England has been for all this idea that it's very insular and uh, you know and a little bit backward and stuff has actually been tremendously open when it comes to a getting football ideas, football people in, but also. Mm. I don't think that a German media landscape or the German media would have been able to provide the kind of opportunities that I've enjoyed here um, as a foreigner. And I think that is to do... That's really interesting. That's really interesting that, that our game is seen as a, as a more progressive, open, inclusive sport. I don't know if I want to go that far, but just from a purely sort of professional step, standpoint, the opportunities that you get working in English in England, I think are just so much bigger than doing the equivalent in Germany in German. And there is maybe some sort of equivalence to football there that what happens in the Premier League echoes bigger because the narrative is more easily followed. You know, when you work with German people or with English people who write about the Bundesliga, I think they have a harder time. We have a harder time telling our stories because everything is translated. It's through the prism of, of the media, if you will, whereas it's much easier to tune into the, the stories that are constantly being churned out by these big brands, big clubs, 
when the language is your own or at least one that you're very familiar with. If Gareth Southgate gave you a ring and said, who should who should we be paying most attention to in this Germany squad? Who would it be? I don't think I have a good answer for that because there isn't that one player that has stood out for Germany. In fact, that's been always our greatest strength in a way that we haven't had a team that relies on one or two players. That's been sort of the system of, of other nations or they've pinned their hopes on particular players and then they were dis- disappointed. Germany's big strength has been to, to turn up as a collective, to negate the strengths of the opposition, to play on the strengths that they have, solve their problems through just being better prepared, being a little bit better coached. I'm not sure we have all these advantages at this time around. Um, there is a great hope, I think, in Germany that the introduction of Leon Goretzka will make a big difference to this Germany team. Uh, I share that hope, but at the same time, I made a point in the piece I wrote today in The Athletic that that kind of pinning your hope on this one sort of all-action midfielder is going to do everything for you, he's going to win the battles at the back, he's going to build the play, he's going to score the goals, is a little bit indicative of where we are. You know, because it is actually not the sign of a functioning team when you think, oh, this guy who hasn't played, now he's going to deliver us. He's going to be our Steven Gerrard. It's not really the way that German football has worked over the last, uh, I'd say, 15 years. It's almost a throwback to earlier times when people would think, oh, you know, we need Michael Ballack to help us, or we need Lothar Matthäus to help us, or we need Matthias Sommer to help us, or we need Stefan Effenberg to perform for us. This kind of you know, this fixation on this one player that's going to do for you, I think symbolizes where, where Germany are as a team, which is not really a team right now. But we're doing that in this tournament, Raph. We're, we're pinning all our hopes on whoever isn't picked. <laughs> that's, that, that, that seems to be how it works. So, you know, if Jack Grealish isn't picked, then we pin our hopes on yeah. him. If Jack Grealish has been picked, we ignore that and then pin our hopes on Jaden Sancho who's on the bench or if you know or Phil Foden who isn't in the 23 that that we're pinning our hopes on who doesn't get picked every single time it feels like yeah it's a natural thing to do at international tournaments but what I would say is, is slightly different in this case is that we're, we're putting our hopes on a player that will play um, and mm. that has played and has already had a big impact in, in, in the few minutes he was on the pitch against Hungary but it's more the type of player. I mean, of course, you always have you know high hopes for for a particular player that might not be playing, especially creative players. But the fact that it's this sort of Roy of the Rovers type that we now think he's going to deliver this team from this imbalance that it has, I think shows you that there is a lot of unspoken anxiety about this Germany team. You wouldn't have to have such a big clamour for, for that one midfielder who's going to lead us to glory if the team was functioning even half as well. Is there a Roy of the Rovers equivalent in Germany? No, no, it has never been. No, we've had, um, we've had a fictionalised uh, sweeper, funnily enough, for Germany. He's been the hero <laughs> uh, on television. Uh, Mani de Libero. Uh, very famous right. sort of uh, young young adults uh, TV series from the late seventies, early eighties. Jurgen Klopp was a big fan. Right. Was yeah. he? Right, Manny Manny Delibero. Yeah. yeah, a more cultured okay. version of Robert. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I don't know. I've never read. How Robert dare Robert, you, sorry. Raph? How dare you? Goodness me! Right, you're going now on that <laughs> low note. See Thank you soon. You. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. 
All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. This is The England Show from The Athletic. Keep up to date with all of our Euro 2020 podcasts and writing by following us at The Athletic UK. So much good stuff on The Athletic at the moment, uh, building up to England against Germany, including Alan Shearer in conversation with Jurgen Klinsmann. They discuss Harry Kane, Harry Maguire, Tottenham and their Euro 96 memories. We can hear a little bit of that now. That was our trophy, Jurgen. It should have been ours. Yeah. Yeah, it should be. Yeah, it should have been yours, and we we'll, we we'll took it home, and and we were singing footballs coming home uh, in the locker room, and and uh, on were the airplane, really, yeah? on were the airplane, yeah? and then actually we, we we sang it in front of our fans, twenty thousand people in Frankfurt at a reception at the town town hall, and uh, uh, and the Germans took over that song, you know, which is a beautiful song, by the way, and it was funny for us because we stayed at the um, uh, close to Regents Park, obviously in a hotel, and and. Uh, and Wimbledon was going on as well, tennis. And Boris Becker had a, a had an injury that that year, '96. So he had to right. stop playing, and he got his treatments in our place because he's a football maniac, you know, Boris. Oh, right. Yeah. And so he stayed with us, and he he pushed us through uh, through all the doubts that we had still. <laughs> on Tuesday, late afternoon, early evening, who's going to be singing "Football's Coming Home"? Will it be us, the English, or you, the Germans? I, the Wembley can, can only be the, the English fans because there are no Germans coming over with, with 10 days quarantine. They're not coming. Uh, yeah. but, uh, but no, I, I think we're going to see an exciting, an exciting uh, match on, on uh, Tuesday night because both teams will go at each other. Both teams, mm. in their characteristics, they cannot sit back. And there is a massive, massive read from George Culkin, who went on a road trip around the country, visiting one place for each of the 26 players in the England squad. So he went to pubs, car parks, fields, where they dreamed of their Euro 2020 moment, one place for each of the 26 players. So you can read George on The Athletic now. And you can actually subscribe for £1 a month right now. Just head to theathletic.com slash England pod. Theathletic.com slash England pod for a pound a month. Anything else stood out for you, Flo, on the on the Athletic at the moment? Yeah, really interesting piece, actually. I think it's it's one for the real heads. Um, Stuart James, Tom Wervel and Mark Carey have done a piece which is just all about Maguire's first touch um, and talking about the Czech Republic game and looking at the passes he's play- he played and talking talking about I think we we touched on it before in an earlier pod, pod about the benefits of having Mings in there a naturally left-sided center back and how Maguire was constantly playing on his right foot even when the short option was the easier pass he was just constantly playing it inside and how then by going to a back 3 on Tuesday, it will help a Maguire probably, hopefully, pass more out to Luke Shaw and enable the full fullbacks to push on a little bit more. So another interesting piece to add to the Michael Cox kind of tactical um, elements ahead of Tuesday. Jack, what have you got? Uh, I'm going to say Cox's piece about Germany and how we beat them because it's uh, you know he's pretty honest about the flaws the flaws of Germany and how bad they were in the Hungary and France game. But then uh, I got a as I read it, I was struck with a kind of uh, ever-growing sense of dread because each paragraph is like, well, you know, and then Germany have got Nabry and Sane and then they've got Muller. Oh, and then they've also got Cruz and Gundogan in midfield and they've also got this lad called Kai Havertz and then they've got Kimmich and Gosens at wing-back. And then by the uh, the piece which starts off by saying how bad Germany have been in two or three games, by the end of it, you think, Christ, they're actually really good, aren't they? They've got brilliant players in every position and maybe we are... Because I've had this kind of creeping optimism like in the, in the last few days every day I get a little bit more confident that England are going to win tomorrow uh, and then I read that piece and I thought we're not are we they're just much better than us 
<laughs> that's known as a as a dose of the Culkins, I think, as you get more and more pessimistic <laughs> as you as you go on. Yeah, I'm gonna have to be bored inside the Michael Cox piece as well. That that was oh. what I was gonna say. And the same I'm the same as Jack. I'm, I'm trying to be confident, but you you read about all their good players and just I know. Oh, I don't know, but it feels like I know that whatever happens, whatever's been going on, however poor the German media think the German national team is, they'll just absolutely come alive at Wembley on Tuesday. I've been been saying that for for the since the last week. I just feel they've got so many good players. They'll just get it right when they play against England. There's something in the water, guys. I'm feeling. I'm feeling the opposite. I'm feeling positive. I just feel like. Oh, well, God. somebody has to flow, to be <laughs> honest, because because the, the other two are, have have gone very miserable in the last few minutes. Uh, Dan, give me your give me your starting eleven. Then now this is your starting eleven, not what you think Southgate will do. I'd, I'd, I'd lean towards a, th- a threat. The, the Mason Mount thing is, is really difficult because you've got no idea. I mean, Jack might yeah. know, actually. Is Mason Mount going to be available? Is, is he available for selection? I, I don't think he should be, personally, if he hasn't trained with the team. I don't think it makes sense, but Jack might no different to me. I think it's very touch and go. I don't think Southgate's going to decide. I think he's going to decide as late as possible. So yeah. he's, a, he's available, Dan. You, t- you, take, right. you take the risk if you want. Okay. I'll go back three. I'll go Pickford and then Walker, Stones, Maguire as the back three. Trippier and Shaw as wing backs. After just criticising Southgate, I will stick with with um, Phillips and Rice as the defensive midfielders, and then I'll go Sterling, Grealish, and Kane. But there's absolutely no chance of that front three happening. No, no. The, uh, all the indications are no Grealish, aren't there? Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Jack Grealish was sat on the bench. Right, Jack. I'm just about going to go with three four three. Um, so that would be Walker, Stones, Maguire, Trippier, Phillips, Rice, Shaw, and then Kane, Sterling, and oh, it's basically a toss up between Saka, Foden, Mount, and Grealish. Uh, I'd probably go for Foden. Okay, Flo. Well, I'd go for the same as Dan's, but yeah, it doesn't look like it's going to be Grealish. So that's the dis- I mean, even if you. Yeah, so I'll go. I'll go with Grealish up there, but I don't think it's going to happen. So yours, you're exactly the same eleven as Dan. Yeah. Okay. Everybody going three four three on this pod. Then uh, thank you very much to all three of you, Jack and Dan and Flo. And Dan is back tomorrow with all the reaction uh, from the Germany game. So uh, that's either going to be uh, very happy and positive, like Flo has been, or very sombre and miserable, like Dan and Jack have been in this last five minutes. Uh, so he's back tomorrow. Thank you to the three of you. See you soon. The Athletic.